What's up, fantasy nerds? Welcome back to an exciting episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined as I always am by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And making a triumphant return after our episode on Robert Jordan's Warrior of the Altai is none other than everyone's favorite booktuber, Daniel Green. Daniel's with us today. What's up, Daniel? Not too much. Uh, feeling good, feeling happy, energetic, ready to go, yep. ready to tell everyone they're wrong about their opinions on Miss Bourne. It's great. <laughs> this, is the, this is the place to do it, though. Like, if there is one, this in the Facebook comments, obviously. Occasionally on YouTube, too. Check out Daniel's channel. <laughs> but uh, this episode is going to be a special one because it's one that Drew and I have been waiting to record for over 18 months now. When we recorded last, two, em- uh, two episodes on Brandon Sanderson's Warbreaker. So now, after a year and a half of waiting, we're finally diving back into Sanderson's Cosmere and we're beginning with Mistborn, the final empire. Gentlemen... On the table for discussion today is the first half of the Final Empire, which means the prologue through the end of Chapter 18. And if you're listening and you're concerned about spoilers, maybe you haven't actually finished the book yet, you've only read up to Chapter 18, don't worry, we've got you covered. We're not going to be spoiling anything past Chapter 18 until we get to a specific point far later in the episode, and we're going to give you a very, very clear indication when it's going to start and when it's going to finish. So continue, you know easily so let's hand it off to drew so he can give us a recap of what's happened so far drew take it away man all right and i actually wrote down a recap this time so this is a first oh Uh, this is yeah this is gonna be a little different this book follows two main characters kelsier and vin kelsier used to be the leader of a thieving crew before being caught by the lord ruler and possibly betrayed by some of his uh compatriots and is now organizing a hybrid job to both rob the Lord Ruler and to help the Ska Rebellion overthrow the Final Empire. Meanwhile, Vin is a young girl, also a thief, who is rescued by Kelsier after she inadvertently bungles a job, uh, kind of tips off the agents of the Final Empire to her presence by using Allomancy. Kelsier reveals that she, like him, is a misborn and can use all of the Allomantic powers. He trains her in both allomancy and espionage as she infiltrates the nobility. Where we left off at the end of chapter 18, Vin has caught the eye of a powerful young lord named Ellen Venture, but is also becoming disenchanted with the kind of nonchalant violence of the nobility toward the lower class Ska. Uh Oh, Oh, sorry. It got so quiet there for a second that I thought we had lost audio. I had a miniature heart attack there. Jesus. Oh, boy. For anybody who's listening and who, who doesn't have the context, we actually lost yesterday's episode that we were trying to record. This is our second time trying to record this. So that's your little bit of flavor there in context. I thought we had just lost it a second time. Okay, pardon me. And, and we're recording this in the middle of a DDoS attack, so... Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, it's 2020. Oh. We have to live on the edge as it is, boys. Oh, my gosh. So. Anyway, yeah, that that is the end of my... Uh, my recap for today's uh, today's awesome. content. Awesome. So I want to kick <laughs> off our style discussion as like you know we, per we you, you, I can't speak. I'm gonna try that again, <laughs> as we usually do on the Inking Out Loud pos- uh Hmm, boys. <laughs> I've I've done ten hours of welding today, and I just want to sleep. Let's kick off our style discussion with an inordinate amount of time talking about this prologue because I love this prologue. Uh, this is my first time diving back into Mistborn 
since we started the podcast. So I'm looking for entirely different things now. And I want to talk about how incredible this, pro- this prologue is in terms of setting the stakes and showing you what you're going to be dealing with. We start on Tresting's plantation. We have ash falling from the sky. We have a red sky. We have a red sun. We're, we're listening to this morbidly blasé conversation between the obligator and Tresting and how he keeps his slave class in line. We, we get to see the folly of the ruling class uh, as, as Tresting spots Kelsier in his defiance and responds with indignation and then just loses him amongst the rest of the Ska, who were, after all, only Ska. Like, we're, we're immediately <laughs> neck deep in this atmosphere, literally and figuratively, and we know trouble is brewing. So what did you guys think about this prologue? Uh, I think, uh, you know, echoing what you said, it does an amazing job of setting things uh, in terms of atmospheric environment. I love how you aren't sure who this Kelsier figure is in terms of villainy or heroics, because yes, he seems to have just killed a bunch of bad people, uh, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean he's a good person. Uh, So you're kind of left with this mystery of, is he good? Is he bad? And it just sets that tone of we're not following your typical fantasy innocent farm boy, uh, it seems all parties involved are willing to, uh, you know, put some knives in some chests for, uh, for the, for their causes. <laughs> Cause where else yeah. do you belong? <laughs> yeah. And I, I particularly liked sort of the duality in this prologue, how, you know, Rob mentioned there's this, uh, you know, opening scene with the ash falling from the sky and, and there's this dreariness to the daytime. And we see it from the point of view of, our, you know, our establishment figures, kind of the bad guys. Um, and then we have a switch in point of view and we go to the sky, we go to the oppressed people, and this time it's at night. And we see the other half of the atmosphere and, uh, you know, kind of the setup of how this world works with the mists at night. And mm-hmm. we start finding out, you know, there are, um, there's a mythology around it, there's superstition. And then, again, this, this Kelsier character goes out into the mists and has no problem doing it. Everybody's like, what the heck, you know? And uh, and on top of that, we know he's powerful, but we don't know how he's powerful. Because, like, you know, he just kills a bunch of people and burns down the manor, but we don't know how. And, and there's this mystery built up through that. And that's one of the things that I really appreciated was uh, the, the building of mystery and, and stakes in the prologue to pull the reader along and really get you interested from the get-go. Absolutely. And I like, you know, there's the, there's people who don't like Mistborn, but no one can read this opening and not go, okay, this guy's cool. Like, everyone's going to be yeah, like, right, yeah. this guy's yeah. badass. The cool factor is installed and, yeah. from page one. Without question, there's definitely that setup of this guy's, he's, you don't know if he's going to be your main protagonist. You don't know what is, you know, you, don't, you aren't aware of him being just a mentor figure, uh, but he definitely has uh, quite the uh, presence, quite the ambiance to him himself. And it works out very well. Yeah, oh, you yeah. don't know you don't know what he's about, but you know you want to read more of him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, and the charisma yeah, just bleeds off of him. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. If so I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so I was gonna say before we really continue with the style discussion, I wanted to ask you guys: How did you discover Brandon Sanderson? How did you start reading his books, and where was Mistborn in that sequence? Uh, uh, okay, so. I discovered Brandon Sanderson when my friend Jonathan showed me Brandon Sanderson. Like, I'd heard his name once before uh, when, I, when it was announced that he was going to finish The Wheel of Time. It was in, like, November or December of 2008. 
and I was like, Brandon, I Sanderson, I, this is an author I'd never even heard of. Like, I, I didn't know how I felt at the time. But then my friend Jonathan, who was also into the, the Wheel of Time series, just like I was, he bought Mistborn, the, the, the trilogy, on Amazon, I think it was. And after he got through reading those, he was blown away by them. And he spent probably two, three weeks pestering me constantly. Rob, you have to read this. Rob, you have to read this. This guy is insane. He's a genius. So I eventually caved. Um, and that's basically how it started. Like, I, I discovered Brandon Sanderson in, like, I want to say early 09, maybe late 08, early 09. I was about 18 years old, 19 years old. And I managed to read this entire trilogy in about, I don't know, eight days, something like that, while whilst going to school. So, it, it was it was awesome. Um, and I've, it's been a whole, it's been a ride ever since. No, I... I... I was in a similar position where I wasn't the this super up-to-date modern fantasy fan. Uh, I had read Wheel of Time and a bunch of classics, but it was honestly more leaning sci-fi at the time. Um, and then I started making videos, and my entire audience went, if you don't read Brandon Sanderson, uh, we'll crucify you. And I went, okay. <laughs> so I picked up Mistborn, and uh, it was, it was good, good to go from there. I, I quite enjoyed it. I didn't love it my first time through as much as I've grown to love it. Uh, is something that's kind of become more clear. Uh, it's funny, I've somehow become to love Mistborn more while also being more critical of it. It's one of these things where like, the more you get into something, the more harsh you are. It's, it's kind mm -hmm. of that thing where I look at Mistborn and I see its flaws, but I also just don't care about them. <laughs> just like, this is still wonderful, <laughs> I don't care. It's just that good. Yeah, oh yeah. There's too much good to focus on, you can't find the bad. Well, you can find the bad, but you just can't spend any time on it. It's overwhelmed, but it's like a it's like a delicious cake that has a little too much icing, and so like yeah, this is there's too much icing, but I'm still gonna eat this dope ass cake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like the analogy. I like comparing food to to literature. I do that all the time on this podcast. I'll probably continue to do it as well. My habit is yeah. on boxers to authors. For some reason, that's been my thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, something I totally oh. for forgot that to open with in, in terms of uh, what I have to talk about was was the. The chapter epigraphs, like this is my first mm. introduction to chapter epigraphs. I'd never seen anything quite like that before reading these books for the first time. I mean, I'd read Wheel of Time, and those books had them at the end in the very beginning, but chapter epigraphs were a concept I hadn't considered before, and they blew me away the first time. I was hooked immediately. How about you? Both of you. Whichever one wants to take that. Drew, I'm going to let you take this one. You just go right <laughs> on. Run with it, man. All right, yeah, so I, uh, this kind of ties into that, how I started on Brandon thing, because I think this is also the first uh, series, this is the first book I ever read that had chapter epigraphs, like you, Rob. Nice. Um, I I don't know if, if that was something that has just become a trend because of Brandon Sanderson, or, you know, if I maybe missed a popular series from before this, because I feel like they're much more common now. And while I wouldn't say I was super widely read before picking up Mistborn in uh, 2008, I, I uh, stumbled over it at Barnes & Noble pretty much by chance and, and enjoyed it. And then uh, a few months later, they announced that Brandon was finishing Wheel Time. And I was like, oh, heck yeah, you know, this guy's going to do a great job. And uh, it, it really just seems that there's been much more of a shift toward epigraphs, whether they're real-world epigraphs um, people taking quotes from their favorite real-world books. I know this is something that, uh, for instance, Scott Lynch does in uh, the Gentleman Bastard sequence, or if it's something more like Brandon is doing with this and in some of his other works where there are 
in-universe uh, texts that get explored via chapter epigraphs. But it's it's a really cool thing that he does, and it helps kind of avoid info dumps while info dumping, you know? That's uh, <laughs> it, true, that's true. It, <laughs> it, it's deftly done, though. I think it's a, a smart choice that he made. Yeah, I can agree with that. See, I, I was most struck... I, uh, I think I, we, we covered this last time, but I, I need to say it again because I'm just going to be honest. I'm, I'm basic. They were very jarring to me my first time through. Um, upon rereading, of course, once they're contextualized for me, I'm like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. But my first time through, mm-hmm. for some reason, it didn't click with me that, like, these are important. Pay attention, dummy. And so I was just kind of <laughs> like, ah, oh, whatever. These are fine. Um, but now, of course, upon rereading it and knowing what this turns out to be, I think it's one of the most interesting narrative decisions Brandon's made in his career. And it's a very bold one for this early in uh, his career as well. I mean, yes, he had had other trunk novels, but this was early on in his publication career, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was his second published book. Yeah, uh, I think it was like his sixth or seventh written book. I want to say it was sixth, but I, I could be wrong. But yeah, like this, this was his second published book. At this point, not a lot of people knew who Brandon Sanderson was. Oh, God. When no? he was announced yeah. to be finishing Wheel of Time, the entire collective fantasy community, you know, like like that what emoji? Where it's just like, uh-huh. Like, the guy's that like, was me. I will admit, that yeah. was me. I was, huh? <laughs> Who? And then you read some of his writing, and you're like, oh, this guy is a disciple of Jordan. It makes sense. Let's see if he can do it. And then he, <laughs> then he did it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny, because uh, this is only... I, I haven't reread these books as many times as, for instance, Rob has... I think this is either the fourth or fifth time I've read Mistborn. And like Rob was saying uh, at the top of the episode, I'm picking up on new things because I'm approaching it you know, from a more analytical literary perspective for the podcast. And one thing that really struck me was with the epigraphs, how Brandon has always talked about the premise for Mistborn as sort of being a, a subversion of you know the hero's journey trope where it's like... Uh, what if the hero fails? And I I always sort of railed against that. I, I thought it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But reading through now, uh, it's, it's really in those epigraphs that we're getting that hero's journey flipped on its head. We start, yeah. you know, getting yeah, yeah. narration from, from this, uh, you know, series of epigraphs talking about how this guy was just the son of a blacksmith in some no-name village that nobody cares about who was thrust into the spotlight of prophecy and, and had to go on an epic journey and all of this and slowly rises to power and becomes a ruler and has counselors and betrayal and, and all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, like that's just full on a standard hero's journey that's being laid out here. And, and that's where he's going with the inversion of that trope. Because this is, you know, apparently this is the Lord Ruler's text. You know, this is... They find it in in his you know inner sanctum in, in a you know, an altar kind of dedicated to him, and you're like, oh my gosh! You know, so this is this mysterious background. That's what happens when the hero fails. Is we end up with the final empire mm-hmm. and the Lord Ruler subjugating, enslaving people for a thousand years. Yeah, so we went over chapter epigraphs. We all went over how we discovered Brandon Sanderson. I want to talk about the aesthetic real quick, about the shard planet, Scadriel. Uh, we're going to talk okay. a lot more about that in, in, later in the episode when we go into our lore as well. But like, I, I want to add 
that the exposition is is chock full of little details added. Like in chapter maybe chapter one or two, I think it was, um, when Vin is still with Kamen, and mm-hmm. her betrayal is discovered. His face is described as being red as sunlight. You know, like Sanderson's voice is really set in this world as he writes every single paragraph, and I find it 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 lends a lot to this sense of escapism that attracted me as a young adult. So, how how do we feel about the aesthetic? I I think it maybe this isn't quite exactly what you're going for, but I think it just speaks to how much effort Brandon puts into every line of text because this what you're talking about these little details they're what stick out all the brighter when you reread. They're kind of thing that when you're first mm. reading it, you kind of are like, yeah, okay, cool. But then once you have this world fully built for you, you've lived in it for a book, going back and just going through again, it's like one of those things where it's like you don't consciously think about it your first time through, but your brain still is aware of it. And then like upon rereading, you're like, that's why this worked. You can start putting it together like, oh, that's why this worked for me. This is how this kind of added up. And it's like your brain finally consciously puts it all together, what was put there the first time. Maybe I just have dumb brains, or I'm the only one who does that. No, but, no, uh, no. I, I, yeah, I, I definitely yeah. level with you on that. It, it's like he plants seeds that grow later on, and then you can go back and see where those seeds were sowed. That's a tongue twister. Uh, upon a reread. <laughs> no, you nailed it, man. You got it. <laughs> so, on, on that kind of idea of the tone of this world that he's built here, um, it could easily be the kind of world that you set a grimdark story in, right? Yeah. It has that that depression, that atmosphere of gloom and cynicism. But he he kind of builds a much more hopeful story out of it. And, of course, Brandon's particular style doesn't really lend itself to the really graphic, uh, you know, gritty, shocking kind of things you find in some of the more popular grimdark out there, you know, George R. R. Martin. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Mark Lawrence, whatever. The... Um, uh, that's kind of, uh, how do I put it? Like, it's mirrored as well in the characters. And I think especially in Kelsier, where he is a character who, you know, he's edgy, he's violent, he's angry, but at the same time, he smiles. That's, you know, that's his driving, you know, kind of character attribute. Nobody's smiling in this except for Kelsier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is something I had written in my character uh, discussions for Kelsier, but I think it is actually uh, pretty appropriate to bring it up in the style discussion as well. Uh, Kelsier is the reason, for me, it's the reason why this book is not grimdark, technically. Because there's always this subtext of hope, of, of, a, of, a, of a brighter future that Kelsier wants to bring, and he's not losing track of that goal. And we can see that because we're constantly mm-hmm. getting points of view from Kelsier as we go through this book. So I absolutely agree with everything you just said. I also would like yeah. to add on to that that Kelsier strikes me as a character who's just a few really bad days away from being a lot darker. Uh, he kind yes. of seems like he's mm. on the like, wire's edge of sanity. And I feel like if, let's say, this book... Okay, I can't... That, that's spoilers. Let, let's just say a few more <laughs> really bad things happen in this book. I think Telsier could end up going down a much more... Okay, never mind. Now we're just dealing with two bad guys fighting each other. There's no good guy left story. Uh, he's trying to choose the lesser of two evils, yeah. Yeah, and that was actually something my first time through, I remember thinking that we could see Kelsier end up being a villain himself if he was just pushed one too many times hard uh, throughout this narrative. Because while he's very strong, while he's very confident, while he's very charismatic, at the same time, he seems to be almost worn down 
to be in a way where he's just been through so much. There's just not a lot, lot left there you can scrape away at. Right. Agreed. Yeah, I think I made a, a comparison back on our Warbreaker episodes uh, between Kelsier and a character in that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Saying that they they are very similar and in in different circumstances, Kelsier could and this other character in Warbreaker could basically swap places. They they could have done exactly what each other did, you know, in their respective stories. Uh, if if you've read Warbreaker, I, it will probably be obvious who I'm referring to there. Yeah, but I don't who want your to spoil. favorite character is because it's the best so. character in the book. Sorry. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not getting into spoilers for uh, Cosmere, so I can't talk about yeah, that. Right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Not yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but um, what I will but... say is, like, what I think makes so I I we're gonna get into this later, I'm sure. But I am a big proponent of Vin as a better character than Kelsier, but Kelsier mm. is just sexier as a character. In the literative sense, so that's why people like him more. Garab starts grunting angrily. <laughs> but I think one of the draws of Kelsier is he is a really good slight twist on a few things you see before. He has some Han Solo in him. He has some, you know, deranged, vindictive, vengeful <laughs> psychopath in him as well. But they're all blended very, very, very well. Um, there's not nothing. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's something we have wholly not seen before but it's definitely a spin on a lot of stuff we've seen before mixed in a very special way. And that's what makes up Kelsier. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Well, I only oh, have actually. a couple of more kind of writing style points. Um, one of them, though, we, we got to talk about the magic and the way yeah, that, that's what, that was Brandon my next Sanderson, thing. yeah, the way he, he establishes his magic system and, uh, and, and how he weaves it into the plot it's it, it is very much uh, an info dumpy kind of thing because he writes these hard magic systems, right? But you know, for the kind of story he's telling, he needs that kind of a, a hard limited magic system because it's more about how the characters go about working within the confines of their world than it is just like brute forcing everything with magic. And that's something that I wanted to you know draw a comparison back to. Uh, uh, the Rune Lords by David Farland, Dave Wolverton, who mm. was in fact Brandon Sanderson's writing professor uh, in college. And uh, I actually don't know if I mentioned this yesterday when we were recording, but Brandon is uh, on record a few times as saying that he thinks the magic system in the Rune Lords is the best magic system he's ever read. And you can really see, once you read both of those things and you, you read Wolverton's style of world building and, and integrating his magic with strict rules around it and into the economies and cultures and worlds that he builds and how Brandon has taken those lessons and really brought it to another level. Mm -hmm. mm, absolutely. Yeah. Like this was, this was my first introduction to a hard magic system. And I mean hard in terms of its limits. It's, it's got these rigidly defined edges. If it like if it wasn't for the wheel of time, I would have been hopeless in trying to understand this one. And it, as it was as a first-time reader, it was very difficult for me to get into. It. I'll fully admit that. It was very very difficult. This idea of burning metals and trying to keep track of the varying magical enhancements, not to not to mention Kelsier's constant reminders of cause and effect. It was it was pretty overwhelming at the time. But you know, after reading and rereading, I trusted my friend Jonathan who told me so, you know, it, it did start to make sense. And it's particularly when we got these scenes 
like Kelsier's assault on House Venture or the infiltration of Credit Shaw. Like these scenes really kind of helped me along. It was a great way I thought on Brandon's part to like showcase the fine details of how Kelsier does what he does. And I also want to say it's probably at this point that a lot of gamers are are starting to appreciate what's happening in these books as well. So I I, I, I we've been heaping loads of praise. So I'm going to bring up the criticism I did before. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, and, 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 you know I'm ready to get swung on. It's fine. Uh, but I, 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 I agree with everything you're saying, but the first actual explanation of the magic system we get from Kelsier is a well-woven into the narrative info dump, a massive info dump where Kelsier, yeah. fitting to what's going on because it's a teaching situation, is just going, here's A, A leads to B, B leads to C. He doesn't go all the way down to C. You know, as we've mentioned, they, they, they leave, okay, there's still mysteries to be had. I'm dancing a little bit for those of you who don't watch the video. Um, <laughs> but uh, th there's still mysteries to be had and that's done very well, it's tantalizing. It makes you want to think about Alamancy a lot, uh, but it is a very big, okay, let's talk about it. Uh, and not exactly, a, it, it follows the tell, don't show rule. Uh, but it's still it's the it's probably it's probably the best way you could do that though. Yeah, I I agree. It it is an info dump. It is pretty heavy handed. I think Brandon does a decent job of making it flow with, you know, the plot and and character interactions and making it seem a little less info dumpy. But it is an info dump at its core. And and you know this is something you know like we said earlier. This is one of his first published books there are definitely aspects of his writing that were not as smooth not as well-rounded as they are now and we've seen this kind of you know development of hard magic systems mm -hmm. improve as he's gone through his career but you know this is one of those early books and and he was still kind of getting his feet wet and figuring out how best to uh integrate his magic and let the readers a little bit behind the curtain and figuring out how the magic works. Yeah, oh, no question. Yeah, I, if, if you want to see how well Brandon's improved, go read this and then go and read Oathbringer, and you will just see a massive step yeah. up in you know information delivery, years. character development. Yeah, yeah, yeah no question. Yeah. I, I I agree. I, I agree. Um, the only thing I would say to to offer in in defense of this scene, I mean, this scene doesn't need defense. It's still an incredible scene. You even admitted yep. that yourself. But just to to <laughs> offer a little more context, though, I would say. This scene wasn't, and it, what made it palatable to me was that they had a destination. Kelsier was, was bringing Vin somewhere. First, they, they actually took a, a detour and they went and they observed the mist wraith. And then he ended up taking her to meet Sazed. Like, the scene wasn't all about the info dump, so the info dump was, in my opinion, perfectly fine. I, did, I, I, I noticed it, but it did not bother me at all. Yeah, I, I, I can totally uh, understand that. And, and I don't think it's jarring as a scene. I just think with my, like, thorough review hat on, it's what stands <laughs> out to me. Uh, yeah. But one, one other thing, this is my other uh, criticism for writing style at this point. Uh, we, we've talked about this before, but uh, he's so good at building characters in Mistborn. These characters bleed personality. None of them blend together. The crew all stands out, but relationship struggles a bit. Uh, relationships are not sure. his strongest suit here, especially between uh, Ellen and Vin. We'll probably get into that more later. Uh, but I just, <laughs> I find uh, we are often just told, here's their dynamic, and then things will be just, okay, that's what they are. And there's some really great scenes in this book, already in the points we've read to, where this isn't a problem, where he does show great chemistry, especially between the brothers. Um, but 
there's still just some, I don't know. There's still some rough patches there from a, from a objective critiquing standpoint of relationship development. But the sure. characters themselves are just legendary within fantasy. <laughs> yeah, and so I only have a couple of small points left on, on writing style. Going back to that idea of, you know, this is an early book. It's one of his, you know, learning efforts. Uh, there are some pretty clear prose crutches that he has uh and and they they still exist just they're much better managed later on he doesn't uh have this over reliance on them things like raised eyebrows everybody raises their eyebrows everybody pauses and the one that really stands out to me is the word however he he uses however constantly <laughs> see I, I noticed two of those the however i didn't yeah. realize oh damn it <laughs> what did you just do drew mccaffrey <laughs> oh no I, uh, but I I completely agree, but to me that's just another of his influences coming through. It's just kind of how you know how Jordan had his braid tugging and arms folding under breasts. Where else are they gonna fold Jordan? Um, yeah. of a singer, <laughs> Brandon, where it's just like a a mannerism uh, at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, so I, uh, I think it kind of it, it's it's something I'm numb to because of my experiences with. But you're probably right. Yeah, I I do want to point out. I know it's a meme at this point, but it is not a crutch, is the word maladroit or maladroitly. Oh, yeah. Yes, he uses it a couple of times, yeah. but that's, you know, not not that big a deal. It It's just become kind of, you know, blown out of proportion. And I guarantee at this point of his career, Brandon will never, ever use that word again. Like, it's, it's just... So... <laughs> hey, I don't get it. Why, why, did, why did everybody focus on this? I don't get it. Like, it's not that, you know, intrusive. Damn it, he uses it what? What twice in this whole book? He read some Tad Williams, he got inspired for a sentence and then he stopped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't get this. It's, a, it's one of these random fandom things that you just can't explain, like stick. It's it's a, it's just... a it's no. a book meme. It's something that just the fandom latched onto because they realized they could make a meme out of it and now it's a thing yeah. and it'll never go away. Yep. Yeah, and then they yep. then they spoil it. He's yeah, like Drew just said, he's never gonna use that word again. Or if he does, it'll oh, be in a very, the, very amusing context. The last word <laughs> in the Stormlight Archive is. <laughs> <laughs> Think about the context necessary for the for him to have to pull that off, though. Gives a satisfying <laughs> ending on maladroitly. It'll be the, someone the going Stormlight what Archive say? with. <laughs> yeah, it, it ends with Kelsier popping out of a shard pool on Roshar and landing maladroitly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of Kelsier, do we want to move on to the character discussion here? Yeah, I'm totally down to move I on to character discussions. I jumped the gun on that. I'm sorry. I jumped the gun big time for, spo- for character no, no, discussion. No, no, no. That took us... In, that was the perfect segue because it took us into our character discussion. I like <laughs> it. We should just start with Kelsier at this point then since we're already talking about him, eh? Yeah. yeah Let's do it. Yeah. Okay, um, so Kelsier. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I'm going to ask a bold question here that you probably don't normally do, but I want to know your answers. If Ooh, you had okay. to cast Kelsier, who would you cast? I just want to... Oh, I already through, know. Who would you, I just want to see your vision of him. Who would you cast? Okay, first I have to look up his name because I know a movie and what role he was in. I know his first name was Charlie, but I can't remember his last name. Sorry, you guys. Drew, you have a look on your seconds. face like someone just put a pizza in front of you. I don't know how to take this. <laughs> I well, the main thing is like I just don't know actors. I don't like engage with fan casting pretty much at all. It's Fair it's enough. not my my forte because I don't watch enough movies to like really know many actors know how good they are or you know 
So I, I don't know if I'm even like, uh, uh, if I have the expertise to properly answer this question. That's fair. All right, Rob. Shit, Rob's I, here's. He wasn't in the role I thought he was. I know his first name is Charlie. Damn it. Uh, Dan, you Charlie know who was? Sheen. Danielle. No, no, no yeah. <laughs> just, just give Kelsey about eight ounces of Coke every day. Uh, no, damn it. It was Danielle who actually, Danielle uh, Prosperi, who is, who's in our, our uh, Cosmere Theories group, and he's a good friend of, of Drew's and mine. Uh, she had just randomly thrown this one at me one day. Charlie something. Damn it. I'm going to send her a message right now. She might get back to me. But I was like, <laughs> you know what? That, that's actually perfect. And like Drew, I'm normally not one to engage at all with casting discussions or casting threads, particularly me, somebody who went to school for film and took courses <laughs> in Hollywood politics. And I under, I, I don't not to say I'm in the industry, but I understand for, to a large degree kind of how it works. And it's just... It, it, I can't get in these discussions without my blood boiling, so I just <laughs> I usually avoid them. But damn it, Danielle had a really good show, a really good uh, decision there. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to you guys randomly later in the episode. I, I promise. Fair enough. Well, I got so, two non-answers. Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> I, I know. Damn it! I can picture his face in my head too. I know what I want to say. I'm just I, my my go-to for him at this point is Carl Urban, who if you don't know, he's oh, uh, the boys. He's really good. In awesome. That. Yeah, I love him. I a think lot. I I hear Carl Urban. I still think Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah, that's, that I forgot he was in that. <laughs> forgot he's he also was in Reaper and Doom. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know who this guy is. He was in Lord of the Rings. Yes, he was one. Yeah, of the you, of yeah. Who, wait, who was he? You know who? You know who A one was talking at the at the. Sorry, say again. He was the leader of the Riders of Rohan. Yeah, yeah. Not the king. Oh, uh, Aomer. Yeah. He was Aomer. Aomer, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I could yeah. see him. I could see Aowen him. Was talking to him and, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Why should he not defend for what he believes right? I do not <laughs> doubt the, his heart, just the, the reach of his arm. Yeah, that's right. No, that's him. <laughs> that's Carl Urban. Nice, nice. But if you've watched yeah, The Boys yeah. especially, that was the role where I was like, oh, this guy can be Kelsier. If you watch The Boys, it's actually a very similar setup for a character. And he rocks it okay. really, really well. Yeah, I love that. I love that show. I, I have to see ep uh, season two. I haven't gotten around to see it yet, but he was brilliant in yet. season one of The Boys. Season He's not out yet? Season two's no. not out yet? No. What are they doing? Good. I watched season one like a year ago. What the hell? Well, I mean, <laughs> the whole world shut down. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is the perfect time to release it. Of course, they have not finished production, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. All right. Uh, but anyway, Kelsier. Kelsier. Let's get back to Kelsier. You know, earlier, Daniel, you brought up you think Vin is a better character than Kelsier, and I think I agree with you there for a, a very specific reason, and that is that most of Kelsier's development as a character um, happened already. You know, it's he has a really cool backstory, a really interesting life, but a lot of that development and change in him has already happened, and mm -hmm. especially in this part of the book that we covered he only really undergoes one small change, and that's after uh, he tries to break into Credit Shaw with Vin, and Vin nearly gets killed by the Inquisitor, and, and we see Kelsier maybe a little a little more sober, a little more willing to delegate and, and communicate uh, with his crew and, and not being as reckless. But in general, he doesn't have this dynamic character arc the way Vin does. She, in these 18 chapters has changed so much mm -hmm. and so there, there's a little more of a like a foil there with with Kelsier that he almost 
plays this mentor role. Although Seizad also plays the mentor role, if we're talking about the, the strict Joseph Campbell hero's journey kind of trope of the mentor with a capital M, they both fit in that role a little bit. Yeah. Kelsey is the one who gives her the talisman, you know, but Seizad, uh, you know, he, he's got a lot more of like the wisdom and helping Vin grow up in a lot of ways. Um, and Brandon's able to balance that because he gives Kelsey her points of view. It allows him to be a little more of a dynamic character instead of just a static mentor, but he is a mentor character. So I said this uh, when we attempted to record before, and I think it's it's a fair <laughs> a fair thing to say, and that would be that uh, Kelsier is a blend of Han Solo and Gandalf. He's got the the roguish, <laughs> lackadaisical, like I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot first kind of thing, but he's also the the you know info dumpy wizard who's trying to educate the young uh, pupil. And uh, I think I think that kind of lends what you're talking about there a bit, where it's he has a lot of intrigue to him. And you know what, Rob? I'm gonna throw you a bone here. I'm gonna throw you a bone as well. So I make sure right? you said Han Han shot first. Yes, Han shot first. Of course <laughs> okay. Did. I just want to make uh, sure I heard that in there. Go ahead. Well, you did. You haven't watched Star Wars. What are you? I know, but I get the meme. I get the meme. <laughs> I just want to make sure because everybody else is gonna be listening to this and be like, did he just say that? Um, I oh, heard that. Right, this is but, not my. I'm a millennial, dude. All right. So here, here's uh, here's my. Uh, Here's my, my, my bone throw into Rob. I do think Dude, if you just crazy. wait this first book, Kelsier is a more interesting character than Vin. But if it's the whole trilogy and you're taking to Vin's development in book two and three, Vin becomes more interesting. That's my... That's, that's not a... I can't, I can't explain why that's not fair without spoiling it. Exactly, that's so, so that's I win. That's a dick move, man. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll have to give you that. By the way, Charlie Hannum. Charlie Hunnam. Par pardon me. That's who Danielle had... Uh, I sent you guys in the actual uh, uh, Drew, me, and Daniel chat. I sent you a picture of him. He oh, was in yeah, Pacific Sons of Rim. Anarchy. Yeah, Sons of Anarchy, and he was in he was in Pacific Rim, and he was in Children of Men as well. Yeah, he's a very good. Oh, pick. okay, very good pick. Well, I didn't picture Kelsey or quite so handsome. This guy is Lady Bone. Oh, he's dashing though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and this is Hollywood, baby. I also just implied that no. Carl Urban's not as attractive as this man. So I'm sorry, Carl, if somehow Carl <laughs> Urban is is a nine out of ten. You know what? I think Carl Urban's more attractive, to be honest. Oh. Now we're diving in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I right. way off the rails. Um. There's one foot out of the closet. All right, now. So, all right, Kelsier is a character. Yes. Wonderful, uh, beautiful man who's been through a mm. lot. He's in. He does what he do. He he does what he does for the. He does good things for the wrong reasons. He's doing. He's fighting for the right cause for a selfish. Uh, goal. Amen. Uh, he's he's on yeah. a vengeance path, and he's called on that, and that's part of his beauty. Where you uh, you don't often get that dynamic, where you have a character who's doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Usually, it's the you opposite. You get the person doing the wrong thing for the right reason, and they have a redemption arc or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a, a good distinction to make, especially because we were talking about how Kelsier could so easily become a villain. And so many of the best villains are doing the wrong things for the right reasons, you know? Yep. And, and having that, that flip to it is that fine line that makes Kelsier the protagonist or a protagonist instead of an antagonist in this no, book. I, on, on the subject of Kelsier, though, you know, I agreed with you, Daniel, yesterday when you... I agreed vehemently when you had said described him as a character doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. I agreed at the time. But you know what? I would slightly push back on that now because... Marsh, his brother, confronts him in, like, chapter 7, I want to say it is, chapter 6, 7, or 8, somewhere in the first third of this book. 
uh, and Marsh, you know, confronts him about the person he used to be. And, and Marsh ends up deciding, discerning Marsh, Iron Eyes, ends up deciding, all right, I'm going to listen to you because for some reason you seem sincere this time. And with context going forward, we know that Kelsier is doing this for Mare, like for the memory of his, of, of his deceased wife. Like, like I, I don't know if the reasons are wrong anymore. Oh, okay. That's that's a fair point. Uh, I will I will say that I, there's a lot of evidence that Kelsier's a user too in this book, and that he oh is, he absolutely oh, yeah. I would I would I would agree, but I would say his motives are murky. I would say that they're they're building off one another, and it's definitely not quite as pure as oh he's doing it all for the right reasons. It's not. It's definitely yeah. a this guy wants his revenge. This guy wants. I'm trying. I'm just being so careful to hit spoilers here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just uh, gonna say, say I'm going to back this up a lot in the next part too. Yeah. Yeah, I would say it's murkier than what. Actually, I, uh, but I think we're good overall. I think I think you're mm. you're right, but Kelsier also is uh, definitely kind of a jerk <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, he's certainly bloodthirsty. I mean, yeah. we we see that side of him coming out where he's so callous about the lives of noblemen and even even the ska who serve the noblemen you know, how many times does he say it doesn't matter that they're ska yeah. it's treason for them to serve them they made that choice and then you know sometimes it's ham sometimes it's breeze and they push back and they're like look they're just trying to find their way in in a difficult life and and that was the only path they saw available to them they're not the ones going out and killing ska on the streets or beating ska and and Kelsey is like, well, you know, they're supporting the structure, so they deserve to die. And it's like, yeah. that's quite an extreme or, to reach. Well, when you he's know? talking to Marsh, he's like, well, fortunately, I was given a path that lets me push men like them off of buildings. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's so blasé about it too. This, the fact that he's so blasé about this death is kind of what disturbs me a lot. And I was listening again more today to part one as well as going into part two. And there was a moment that that really stuck out to me that I was that was really really disturbed. And it was during I think it was during the infiltration of Credit Shaw. When Min, Min, oh my God, Min <laughs> is is kind of reeling from the fact that she has just killed men for the first time, and Kelsier is almost like, I get the sense that he's almost frothing at the mouth. He's frantic as he kind of justifies it to her, saying these men were evil. They withheld the final. They they, they upheld the final empire. Uh, I just in that moment I was like, oh my god, this like she's clearly, clearly very, very vulnerable and kind of shocked right now, and he's just doubling down on on that sentiment, on that I don't know. It, it was kind of disturbing, uh, you know, having that context going through and keep and keeping that in mind. That Kelsier's not perfect. He's no. got a lot of flaws. He's not even truly a protagonist for at least for the first half of this book, at least. And the no. irony of the fact that Brandon is known as an author who won't go too dark, and yet the two protagonists of this trilogy, Vin and Kelsier, have a higher body count of people just doing their jobs than maybe any other fantasy protagonist I can think yeah. of. They will murder guards who are just collecting a paycheck left and right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but that's that's pretty much all I had to say about Kelsier, and also the fact that I was—I mean, I was going to to say it for now, but I brought it up earlier. The fact that Kelsier's reason this isn't quite grimdark. He's yeah. got this, you know, mm -hmm. subtext of hope that that persists. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, shall we move on to Vin then? Vin sounds good. So, got a lot to say about Vin. <laughs> I don't actually. <laughs> I really have not a lot to say about Vin. Uh, how, on a scale of one to ten, how much of a this is a reader insert, would you label Vin for the first bit of this book? Because I think she develops a lot of personality later on. But at the beginning, I think she's rather 
uh, written in a way where it's meant for the reader to be able to just relate to her as much as possible. This downtrodden street urchin is just written in a way where you, the reader, are supposed to just sympathize, 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 and put yourself in her shoes. But I think it's a really effective way to invest you in the story early on. Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah. you know, on, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd probably give it like a 7 or an 8. It could be could be made uh, more obvious or blatant if it was, you know, written in... In, in less of a fantastical and, and dark setting yeah. where she's literally starving and, and living in alleys and, and, and receiving beatings from her brother. And what really breaks my heart is how she's talking to, to Marsh. Or no, sorry, it was probably Kelsey. Yeah, she was talking to Kelsey and, and Kelsey was telling her about Marsh and she was just not understanding the concept of an older sibling who doesn't beat you. <laughs> and you're not trying to constantly escape? And, and oh, I see, so you must have been strong enough to overpower him and escape. And it's like, no, that's just not normal, Vin. So my heart, like, really, really breaks for her there. Like, like I, I can see the fact that she's a 16-year-old. She starts off as a 16-year-old, and she's kind of, I don't know, vague in her, in her personality at the beginning, besides the fact that she's just depressed and, and doer all the time but, but I, I think I, that fits the narrative though because people who have been through these extreme circumstances tend to be subdued they tend to not have the shiniest personality because they've been through so uh, much yeah, I suppose so that's it, indicative of a saw yeah yeah saw so kind of, pardon you're good but it, it fits though like vin's personality at the beginning and her lack of one to me was actually just very well built into the story and then she kind of just develops a stronger and stronger one as the story goes on and she becomes more confident yeah so i i do think you're right in in that description of like a reader insert so to speak that she is a very sympathetic character and brandon wrote her strategically to establish that sympathetic connection with the reader but i want to kind of draw a, a line and maybe this is a fine line i don't think she's a mary sue in that term of a self-insert character oh god no. um you know like for instance um wolfgar in warrior of the altai the guy is a blank slate he is a reader uh, you know, a, a bodysuit for the reader to have, like, a, a fantasy power trip reading that book, where, like, he has no no personality, and, and it's just there for the reader to feel like, oh, I am this dude. And, of course, that was written from the first-person perspective. You know, it's the same thing with, for instance, uh, the Master Chief in the first Halo game. Mm. Barely says anything, no personality. He's just there as a pair of boots and a suit of power armor for the player to step into and feel like they are the Master Chief. I don't think that's Vin, but I do think uh, she ticks all those boxes that, Daniel, you mentioned, you know, the, that uh, sympathetic character early on. Her plight is really driven home. Uh, she's, she has this subdued personality so that she doesn't overpower the page, and it's easy for the, the reader to like her. So I, yeah. I have one issue with what you just said. Are you saying I'm not the Master Chief? <laughs> I was going to say Doom Guy is an even better uh, yes. example to use yeah. there because he yeah. never, never speaks, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. I don't know maybe he says F you or if you hit I a certain a key, but that's about it. Um, yeah, I think Vin is a good example of how to do that right, where it's, uh, it's a character who is meant to serve that purpose, but it's not a cheapskate because she does develop one. It fits the story. And it's, uh, it's, I don't know, and I think it, it's believable every step of the way. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Like, like Vin wasn't immediately interesting to me, I'll admit, as a 18, 19-year-old guy, just coming straight out of, fresh out of Harry Potter and then the Wheel of Time. 
Um, but she wasn't really boring either. I was just no. very kind of meh about her, you know, as as I dove into Mistborn. Uh, I mean, she she's fine. She she reads like a believable character. She's fully realized. She has her own quirks. Uh, she's impressively blunt, <laughs> but she's still somehow not depressing to read. Uh, no. and, and this was, of course, my, my first introduction back in, since this was like 2008, 2009, it wasn't a big, a big trope yet, but this was my first introduction to the young female street thief. Uh, like, I was, I was totally into her beginnings, you know? Like, I was tired at that point of the dreary, peaceful village kind of backward village type myself. Uh, so Vin was a bit of a breath of fresh air, even though, you know, she's living in a dank, overpopulated city. Um, but, you know, bes besides that, especially for the first half of this book, I don't have a lot to say about Vin. I just really couldn't find a lot to, to, to sympath not sympathize, but to empathize with. Like, I was just, she's so different, you know? Yeah, I, I would say that she's more curious than I remember her being. Uh, in the in this read-through, she's definitely very interested yeah. in everything that's happening. Um, that kind of stuck out to me a lot this time. Especially the when she was talking to Yeah. Oh, Wait a second. Did I just... Was that in this first yeah. part? That was not in this first part. Sorry. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, sorry. You could, could tell. That out, you but... could tell that I once... You know, I, I went ahead today and started reading the second half while I was working. I'm just My glad view. you didn't go, oh, f all the audio's gone. And I'd be like, mother... Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's okay. That's not happening. I'm um, recording it in two sources myself here. But no, I, I want to talk about Vin in terms of her femininity, because I think this is sure. a, a pretty key part of her character arc in this book, and how she starts it, yeah. off a, in a very kind of androgynous situation. You know, she cuts her hair very short. She wears trousers and, and you know, dingy shirts. She doesn't want to be feminine. She rails against the idea of a perfumed bath. You know, she's like, oh, people will be able to smell me. Like, what the heck? And uh, and over time, you know, we, we see this change in her to the point where where we leave off in Chapter 18. She likes having, you know, scented clothes and, and scented baths. And she uh, she's starting to appreciate the beauty of feminine clothing and her own femininity. But I think this is where Brandon kind of misstepped. And that was his choice to not have any of the other members of the crew women, because she right. doesn't get, um, yeah, she doesn't get a a female female relationship in in a way to let her kind of explore her femininity in a healthier way, because most of it is her going to these balls and seeing all the beautiful noble women and with their big boobs and hips and hair all done up and and everything, and she's jealous. You know, she's she feels inadequate. And so she's approaching, you know, like womanhood from kind of an unhealthy place. And I wish she had had a character, maybe like Breeze or, or Ham, it, had that been a female character, that she could have had a little more of a dynamic approach to that development where maybe she still has this unhealthy jealousy toward the noble woman, but she has a more healthy role model among the crew. And that helps, you know, draw out her personality and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree uh, with that, and it's it's something that I think it could have been. It's not handled perfectly, but it could have been mishandled much worse uh, than it is. Yeah. It could have been. It could have gone down some rabbit holes that uh, I think certain other fantasy authors would have been much more likely to be guilty of. Um, and well, it's yes, not perfect. I'm very glad. <laughs> very glad it's not a grim dark book in this <laughs> sense. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and I think, you know, one of the first scenes we actually, I think the first scene we have, we see Vin in, it's established that there is abuse around her. So it makes sense why mm -hmm. she would be minimalizing her own, um, you know, feminine wilds. Is that the, no, that's a horrible way to put it. I, I regret yeah. every word I just said. I'm feminine sorry. Feminine wilds? <laughs> just her Somebody feminine reading Stormlight. in general, you know. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, so. I agree. But, that's but I still, I, I still generally like her, um, and I know Daniel, you don't love her relationship with Ellen. Uh, I, I her relationship with Wonder Bread. With Wonder Bread. If Ellen Venture was a spice, he would be flour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I when I first read these books back when I was you know seventeen, eighteen years old, and. Uh, I, I was dating a girl back then who had a lot of things in, in common with Vin, and there were some things that I found in common with Ellen. You know, I was the bookish guy. You know, I was the one who didn't necessarily have the confidence to, to you know, be like, oh, yeah, let's go dance. You know, I, I would be the one to awkwardly flirt in that kind of a way. And I'm a very different person now. I'm 30 years old. I'm married. You know, <laughs> life has gone in a much different direction than that. So it, it is a little more jarring now. But I can at least appreciate the accessibility of that relationship for a younger reader. Yeah, for I sure. See, I would have, I would have argued that Ellen Venture is definitely the self-insert character for the vast majority of those who are going to be reading this book, uh, Brandon Sanderson fans, I think, especially at the time of this was this was this was released. You know, Ellen Venture was kind of me. He was just like a bookish nerd who had no idea how to talk to women. Not to say that I have any idea now, but. <laughs> I don't know, like, <clears throat> I wasn't a huge fan of Ellen, a fan of Ellen, even though he was a lot, <laughs> like, I thought of myself. Um, but, like, he struck me as, obviously, like I've been saying, bland. Um, I kind of attribute that now, with more context, to my lazy expectations as a new reader way back in the day. I was kind of hoping to find out that he was an allomancer, or he had some really, really interesting secrets. So, I kind of grew bored of him pretty quickly. Um, but I have a different appreciation for him now. Uh, like... I, I, the reason I was underwhelmed though at, at, at the time was because I, I specifically recall realizing immediately that this would be Vin's romantic interest. So the predictability of a few of his interactions with her, to, like it kind of exasperated me. But there are details I'm picking up on this read now that I'm looking for them that I hadn't realized before. Sanderson has been seeding Vin's thoughts with little musings about Ellen and, and little concerns for him. Uh, both of which I didn't really pick up on before. Now, I, I want to say, like, I think ultimately this is less... Because in this podcast, we talk about style, we talk about the writing technique. I, I do want to say that this is ultimately saying less about how to write these kinds of books, though. And in this moment, more how to read them. I, I heard the relationship described by a lot of, uh, you know, other fans saying that this was this relationship was lacking... You know, I'll admit it's not Sanderson's best relationship work between his characters, but he's still, you know, as I'm coming to realize this time, he's giving us a lot to work with as we accept these two coming together. Yeah, for sure. Sure. I, 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 I don't know. I just have a hard time believing Vin becomes as into Ellen as she does just due to the lack of, I don't find him very interesting, but there are certainly things within the book that, could be seen as justification. So I agree with you in that. Sweet. Yeah. 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 But yeah, that's everything I had to say about Ellen as well. Yeah, I think that's the end of my character notes in general. 
I just have one point about Sazed myself. You okay. know, Sazed is, is Sazed. He's a sexy piece of man meat and you love him? Uh, <laughs> this terrorist man. I mean, what else can I say? He's so warm-hearted. He's so patient. He's so hopeful. And I love how, I love how, especially at this point in the series, Brandon has given us two characters with such disparate temperaments as Kelsier and Sazed. But where, where we end up assuming that, that, that Sazed is weak, Brandon decides to flip that on its head and introduce another mystery with the mysterious strength of Ferrochemy. And it, it turns out Sazed is, and I wrote this down, Sazed is the most gentle badass I've ever read. What a guy. Two thumbs way up for Sazed the Terraceman. I'm going to put yeah, you in a I, tight I, spot. Are you okay? You ready for this? Okay. Hit right. me. Is he more gentle and more badass than Paranebara? Yes. Okay. I didn't even need to think about it. I mean, I thought about it for about 0.8 seconds. He's more gentle for sure. Yeah. Okay. Oh, come what on. What about for dude. Loyal? Is he more gentle and more badass than Loyal? <laughs> Loyal is, is awesome, but he doesn't have too many badass moments. He has a couple, but nothing like Sazed has. Punching an, Inquis yeah. an Inquisitor so hard that it breaks the Inquisitor. I love that. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I will never forget the first time I read this book and getting to that scene and realizing, like, oh, Sazed just took out an Inquisitor and being like, what is this guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At this point, you would have thought he'd been taken out by a fruit fly, and suddenly he breaks an Inquisitor. I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> it was so unexpected and so awesome. I love that duality. He's so gentle, but he's so, so tough. I love it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, that's the end of my character discussions. Okay. Do you want to go into some miscellaneous notes before we do the Cosmere section? We should. Yes. Okay. I don't have any, but yeah. Go for it. Okay. Um, I, so I just wait, wanted to point out... This is full cool. spoilers now, right? Uh, before we go into lore, right? Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, just before. Okay, so we're going to be going to spoilers in about five or ten minutes, but not quite yet. Um... So, I thought it was really cool. I, I noticed this, of course, and I have noticed it a few times now, but it still deserves mentioning, I think, just in terms of how expertly it was done. Kelsier's point of view, one of his first, I think it might even be his first point of view in this book, we get these memories of Gemmel, or Gemmel. I don't know if the, the G is hard or soft, but the, the man who trained him as a Mistborn, this memory where he's saying, you can't change your weight. You're an Allomancer, not some northern mystic. I thought that little, grum, that little crumb was brilliant because of how early it came it was awesome yeah i i definitely noticed how neatly seated the uh the hints about ferrochemy were where mm. we get oblique mentions to metal mines with no context whatsoever and you're like yeah. well i don't know what that is and then you're you're at the scene with vin and she's reading one of ellen's books and there's just a throwaway uh, mention of ferrochemists and and you're like well what what is going on with that and then Sazed, you know, takes out an Inquisitor, and, and we have this mention from, from Gemmel, and, and you're like, okay, there are all of these pieces that are being laid out. How do they fit together? I, I thought it was a great mystery that Brandon set up in the oh, first yeah. half of this book. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Agreed. Anything else? Shall I continue? Go right ahead. One more. Go right ahead. Right. Yeah. This heist planning scene in chapter six. So I, I want to say narratively it's done very well. I think one of the things that's starting to take me out of it, though, is it, now that I've read it again and again and again, I've probably read this book 40, 50 times. 
It's how evenly this input comes from each character in turn as they plan this job. There doesn't seem to be any confusion anywhere about the solutions or the ideas they have. Every character just immediately understands everything that the last character just said and expands upon it perfectly. Each character waits and they chime in at the perfect time with the perfect bit of advice. A few pieces in this scene, you know, it almost came together too well. It feels like. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it, it, especially because it took me like 15, 20 reads to even notice it. But there it is, all the same. How'd you guys feel? It's it's an Ocean Eleven's heist planning scene where you don't have Matt Damon going, but what about? And so it kind of... Yeah, right, that's what I'm waiting for. Like, yeah. like, I had a few moments where like, well, hold on, wait, what? And then I was just hoping for some character to, to, to speak up. But no, they all, they're all with, they're all right there with him. I was like, uh. Yeah, I think it's, you know... Brandon was trying to do this in a way to indicate to the reader, like, look at how much these characters have worked together in the past. Look at how good they are at 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 being thieves, you know. And at the same time, though, like, look, I work in marketing. I've I've done tons of these kind of brainstorming sessions, like literally same exact deal. You put a whiteboard up in the corner and you break down the issue into different categories and. It never goes like this. It never, ever, ever goes like this. So you're saying like, you kill to have a team like this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A very specialized team, if, yeah. Every meeting would take five minutes, and, uh, <laughs> oh, the dream. The, the, the corporate dream. <laughs> I bet you there'd be a lot who can agree with that, too. Yeah, but... That's at the end of my miscellaneous points, though. All right, then I think we got to go into our uh, spoiler section here. We're going to be discussing the Cosmere. So if you haven't read the rest of Mistborn, if you haven't read Stormlight Archive, Warbreaker, any of the other uh, Brandon Sanderson Cosmere books, now is your warning. Check the description of the episode. There will be a timestamp when we finish this section up that you uh, know when it's safe to jump back in. Sweet. Now, Daniel, kick us off, because I know you have things to say. <laughs> so spoilers for the first bit of this book um so spoilers sorry no spoilers for the full cosmere right so we're going we're going ham yeah. here i was making sure yeah okay good yeah. yeah so i think what makes mistborn such an interesting touch point for the cosmere is not just like seeing how brandon's grown from where he wrote it but seeing how much planning he clearly had already done for oh my God. the Cosmere. Yes. It's unreal how many little bits you get that are shown and grown on later on in later Cosmere entries. This guy has been planning a Stephen King-sized universe for ages. And it's like he's just now... Be, like It feels like he's had this like stack of paper in the back. He's already had planned out. <clears throat> and he's just doling out... Whatever that's, I feel like that's why he's able to get these books out so fast because they're already done. <laughs> he's just like <laughs> once yeah. a year, just chucks one at our face, and that's the whole process. Or two. He or just two. says, "Oh, by the way, I wrote another one. I wrote the sequel to Shadows of Self, and it's coming out three months later." Yeah, <laughs> that madman, that blessed madman. He's like Kelsier himself. No, I I really think you're you're right, Daniel. He he has so much of the whole Cosmere plotted out at least in skeleton form. He has to. And one of the things that stood out to me uh, this read was in the chapter 8 epigraph. Um, the quote is, He shall defend their ways, yet shall violate them. He will be their savior, yet they shall call him heretic. 
His name shall be Discord, yet they shall love him for it. And that Discord is capital D. Now, we have a word of Brandon where somebody like asked, you know, can a shard's intent be altered depending on the personality of the vessel? And he said yes. And a guy said, you know, if somebody other than Sazed picked up Ruin and Preservation, uh, could it have been Discord instead? And, and he said, like, yes, that's possible. And at the time, and for a long time, until I finally reread this, I was like, where did this guy get Discord from? Like, where did he just pull that out of? And now it makes sense. And I am morally convinced that it's not necessarily that Seizet is going to be uh, uh, killed and somebody else is going to ascend to Harmony and turn it into D Discord. But I think as Seizet's personality gets worn down over time, Harmony will become Discord. Because this epigraph is supposedly from the Hero of Ages prophecy. And we know Seizet is the Hero of Ages. I mean, it, it, it's got to be the Mistborn Endgame. Seizet's going to turn into trouble. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, I, I have I have a couple responses to that. Number one, when, when, when reading, I also had a different interpretation. I also definitely focused on this very specific wording of his name shall be Discord. But I took that a lot more literally. I thought perhaps uh, in Hleni, in the ancient Terrasman language, that Sezid was just the word for Discord. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a question for Brandon. That would be a really interesting word of Brandon to get. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess it could still also make sense with what you had just put forward as well. It could just mm -hmm. be that the terrorist saying, oh, you know, co completely calling it something that we don't even know yet. Um, I do love the idea that the ancient terrorist were very Cosmere aware. Uh, it hasn't been specifically proven. I don't, as far as I understand, there have, there have been no words of Brandon, you know, uh, confirming that. But... If there's something that Rashik says in secret history that has always bothered me, I didn't bring this up yesterday. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it at you guys now. When when Rashik dies and he meets Kelsier at the Well of Ascension in uh, in the uh, oh my God Shadesmar in the cognitive realm, he tells Kelsier one more year and again I would have ransomed this undeserving planet. He makes specific note of this planet and it almost sounds like he's placing it in context so it makes me wonder mm. what that context is so i i've always been a huge proponent of, of of the theory that the ancient terrorismen were cosmere aware to some extent and we know from brandon's words that they were very realmatically aware they knew about the three different realms so yeah i i i think I think it would be foolish with how much Brandon has had stuff like this pay off to assume it's anything but what you're saying. I mean, it, it, it yeah. has to, it, he has had <laughs> so you. many little seeds that grow into trees um, that it's just like, all right, at this point, whenever someone throws out a theory, I'm just like defeated. I'm like, probably. <laughs> just yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I didn't have anything else Cosmere for this portion of oh, the book. Actually, I just want to really quickly add one more thing to your idea of Sazed perhaps crumbling and going dark, or at least turning into trouble in some way. At the end of Hero of Ages, in the chapter epigraphs there, particularly at the very end, after Vin dies, or maybe right when Vin dies, uh, Sazed, who is writing these chapter epigraphs, as it turns out, does mention that of all the people who had held that shard, she was the most deserving. And there was something that confused him about why she was so special. I think Sazed 
still, to some degree, understands that he's not the final or perfect holder of either of those shards, despite his balance and connection with both of them. Well, and there's also the issue of the imbalance between the shards, because Preservation put a little bit of his power into humanity to give them allomancy. Right. And, and so, by nature, Ruin is slightly out of balance with Preservation, and I think over time that's going to become an issue for Seiza. But, okay. yeah. But Seiza didn't, didn't correct that as he took up both shards and became Harmony and he didn't, well, like, sweep maybe. his hand and change the spirit webs of mankind. Uh, we don't know. Maybe. Hmm. Have, people have asked Brandon, you know, what Seiza did with that extra bit of power and Brandon just raffled it, so. Well, I'm, okay. I'm, I, I do know that we, all, we also, from how everything's been set up, know that Allomancy could be taken away from humanity. And that's where I, one of my predictions is that Allomancy <gasps> will be taken away. Oh, Ooh. I never heard that one. Daniel Green just dropped a bomb on me, at least. <laughs> I don't know how many of those listening actually knew that already. If you have a system wow. set up so that you can give humanity abilities, but we also know individual characters can reach this level again, someone could theoretically take it away. And I think that's a possibility. <laughs> Damn. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That that's that's quite a theory. I like it. I like it. Ooh. Well, uh, do we have any more Cosmere <laughs> no, uh, no, stuff no. to discuss? We do have fan questions, but we don't have any other Cosmere uh, lore things to talk about. I think. Okay. Let's let's knock out uh, at least a couple of fan questions. We are running on a little bit of a tight tight schedule today, so probably won't be able to get to all of them. But let's try and get a couple of them out of the way. Sure. Okay. So, I still have the post open here in front of me. Let's start with Mike Schaefer. Mike Schaffer. Pardon me, Mike. I might have uh, mispronounced your last name there. Since it's a heist movie in fantasy form, which heist movies, if any, inspired Brandon to write The Final Empire? I think we can pretty all agree with Ocean's 11 through <laughs> yeah, for 95, sure. <laughs> whatever the hell they're on now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's, there's no way. You brought up that scene with them planning. That was, as Daniel said, straight out of the Oceans movies. We just need to have one of them wearing a Rolex and a suit and then having that like George Clooney knee up on the table posture. And frosted tips. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt Damon eating need in the a, background. Yeah, I was going to say need ham in the corner just like munching away on a bay wrap. Or like, Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Brad Pitt. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, oh, we have two questions. Two questions about Vin's relationship with... Oh wait, sorry. I, I read Ellen there. Sorry. No, she didn't say Ellen. Joy Kristen Allen who is a longtime listener and commenter, how do you feel about Vin's relationship with Kelsier? I always thought of it as a mentor slash student fairly clearly, but lots of people read more romance in it. I think those people are insane. I think there's no romance to it at all. I think Kelsier doesn't have that in his mind whatsoever. There might be moments of Vin looking at him that way, but Kelsier does not look at Vin that way. Because one, she's a child when he meets her. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm with Daniel on this one. I never saw any romance there. Um... A lot of admiration, but that's no. about it. Yeah, this this isn't a <laughs> thing from the Black Company. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, that's a spoiler, damn it! <laughs> uh, we can, we can bleep out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's good to know that I'm not the only one. Okay, but um, <laughs> no, with, with, with Finn and Kelsier, I mean, I read this book as a 17-year-old, or 18, 19-year-old, so I was very close to Finn's own age. But I was, I was like really trying to self-insert with Kelsier a lot because he was so badass. And that young part of me was like, yeah, this guy is really cool. Did I ever see it being possible? No. But was I very aware of it? Yeah, I kind of was. Particularly, as you said, you know, with Vin, uh, yeah, 
regarding Kelsier more so than vice versa. Kelsier at no point, at no point reads as if he's that's even remotely on his radar. And Vin very, very rarely does, if at all. But I wouldn't have been opposed to it, I guess, despite their age difference, just because this is a fantasy setting, and we know that Kelsier at heart is a good guy. It would have, it might have weirded me out a little bit, but I think I would have accepted it. But I don't see any reason to think that that was ever even a possibility. There's neither one of them gives you a reason to. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, but here's the thing. I would have had a problem with it because one of the, the only thing that gives Kelsier a boner in these books is killing. And I like that about him, and I want him to maintain that. <laughs> that is what he's entirely focused on. I feel like if suddenly he had a romantic subplot mm. with Vin, it would have hurt the way his character is established because the way his character is established is he's a very one-goal-focused person. He doesn't have time to sit down and flirt with Vin. He is... I need to get, achieve this mission, and that is what I am devoted to, 100%. I gotta go yeah. kill some and noblemen. We're, yeah. And we're still spoiling, right? This We haven't ended our spoiler talk yeah. yet? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Vin comes out and, and, well, Vin, Brandon, comes out and directly addresses this in book two. Specifically yeah. with a conversation between Vin and Alan, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Cool. Maybe Next do, question? Uh, one more question, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Ba 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 ba. Kelsey mentioned Vin, rest of the crew. Uh, okay, let's see here. Uh, how would you classify Ellen Venture's morality? He's part of the noble class. This is from Mark Geller, and he has participated, even unwillingly, let's say, in the excess excesses perpetrated by the ska. I, I would lump him exactly upon with... the ska, not by the ska. Sorry, you're good. <laughs> I, I, I would lump him exactly within going back to like old South America with the people who just benefited from slavery but did nothing about it. They're not good people. They definitely should have done something. But they're not as guilty as the people who are directly murdering them. Um, they're, they're guilty by association. And I would say Ellen has some uh, reparations to make because of it. And he attempts to. That's part of his story is he wants to solve the problem he benefited from. Yeah. Um, but I yeah, would say... Yeah, it tracks Vin. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think... Yes, he definitely carries some guilt from being part of that institution. Um, I think Kelsier is partially right later in the book when he tells Vin, like, look, he's not actually interested in this stuff. He's just doing it to piss off his dad. Um, oh, for sure. You know, and I, I think, I think that has some truth, but it's not all the way the truth. Ellen does have interest in social justice. But he's coming from such a skewed perspective on it that, like, like he can't even imagine taking steps to achieve that social justice yet because he still thinks, like, Ska aren't even human. I mean, when he asks Vin, you know, he's, like, all eager. He's like, you know, you've, you've heard the Ska talk. Are they as smart as we are? And, you know, and she plays the game. She's like, oh, no, of course not. And he's like, oh, okay. Like, he was operating on that, like, assumption to begin with that they are subhuman and was like, well, maybe maybe they're not subhuman. And then when one person says no, he's like, okay, no, yeah, they're subhuman. Like, that's that's an issue. That's a big issue. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I would, um, I would go as far as to say that Ellen is a racist. Um, I don't think anyone's going to push back yeah. on that. He's flat out a racist. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whether or not he, he's, he's aware that he is. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, now, Drew, I know you had just said that was probably going to be our last question but believe it or not now that i'm looking at it we only had one more question beyond that and it looks Let's like go. something that we could answer in a minute or less 
It's just, okay. This is from Simon Flesher, and he just asks, who is your favorite intro character? Anyone on the crew, Kelsier or Vin included, do you think this is the best heist book there is, or is there one better? You can't choose Mistborn. I and, gotta... Oh, I, I can see that. What misting would you want to be, too? We could answer that, I guess, real well, quick. Well, I got the misting answer tattooed right there on my freaking wrist. Um... I know. I saw that <laughs> yesterday, and I didn't mention that. I meant to. Uh, but best... Oh, wait. I guess. Oh, I was just say which metal? Sorry, it was which metal? Oh, crap. I don't remember can the you, steel uh, can alphabet. You, can you know it off the top of your head? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quiz you. Tell me it's one of the god metals. No. No, it's not one no? of the god metals. That is... Is that zinc? No, it's not zinc. You're... Brass. Nope. Damn it! We've got seven more, Drew. At this point in the book, no, eight more. All right, let me let me open up the Ars Arcane. Uh, Drew, Drew's he's determined. He's gonna get you. <laughs> Drew's like, I'm gonna know this. I got my library in front of me right now. I'm gonna do this. Wait, hold hold that up again. Oh, my, my wrist is getting tired, man. Yeah, well, at least in the Ars Arcane up here, that is zinc. Oh yeah, it is zinc. Sorry, I thought you said ATM. That's zinc. Sorry. Oh, oh okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought oh, okay. in my head I was like, you said ATM. Yeah, it's sick. It's sick. Somewhere. I think it's because I said one of the god medals, and you're like, no, so no, no. you no, would no. be a rioter. I'm a rioter. I, I think, I think I would be a soother. Um, I I have vertigo. I'm afraid of heights. So I would absolutely not be a, a coin shot. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like rioters because so I, uh, I love rhetoric and I love the ability to get people riled up through speech. So I was like, well, there's a metal as a shortcut, so let's just go with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so disappointed in both nice. of you guys. Why would you not say either pewter or, or, or coin shot? Or, like, Do I or look steel? like a pewter? Do I look no, like a No, but you could burn it. Does Vin <laughs> look like a pewter burner? Does Vin look like a I know, thug? I know, I know. She's oh, like, well, I, I will admit, pewter would be quite advantageous for playing hockey. Oh, Are you yeah. kidding me? <laughs> uh, pewter well, Don't or... go hockey. If you're going to have pewter, go boxing and just murder people and make hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> pewter or steel pushing <laughs> or coin shot, even yeah. though as a coin shot, your body would be very, very subjected to G-forces as you're throwing yourself around a lot. Yeah. So I guess yeah, pewter no, would be I, my answer, yeah. My, my vertigo would be real problems with uh, either <laughs> being a coin shot or a lurcher. For sure. <laughs> oh, man. You're missing out, man. Uh, and as for the first part of that question, but what was it? Favorite intro character? Anyone on the crew? Um, favorite intro ham, character? Ham. like ham. Oh, Sazed. What the hell am I saying? Moab? Sazed. Oh. oh uh, I'm a, a rioter <laughs> over here. <laughs> this episode is done. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What the hell oh are you gosh. talking about, boy? Moai. <laughs> now I, I think either Kelsey or Marsh for me. I'll go with Marsh. I'll go, I'll go with you on Marsh. I love. He's got that a great scene. intro scene. Yeah. Oh my god, I love that scene so much. When he's tapping on the board, he's saying, "Oh, this isn't about you, huh?" ATM right there. Yeah. Oh, it, it gave so much. It gave so much to both of those characters in terms of their motivations and how they've been pitted against one another. You know, it's ah, uh, I can't talk enough about how much I love that scene. Okay, what was that last question? There were like three in Yeah, that was there, like right? a blend. Sorry, there was another questions. one. There was a part of that question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you think this is the best heist book or is there another one better? Lies of Lock Lamora. I think this Lamora. is the best one. That... Lies of Lock Oh, damn. See, as I've only read three quarters of Lies of Lock Lamora, I can't... And it's the last quarter where suddenly the author's like, you thought you think, mother... And then it's... Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got yep. lost somewhere with the... Uh... No, I'm not going to... That's right. It's a spoiler. I, I spoiled it yesterday. I'm not going to do it this time. I learned my Yeah, that's, that's an automatic right there. The Lies of Lock Lamora is a better heist book. 
Oh my Because this God. isn't even really a heist book, let's be honest. Well, and yet, what it, the hell it are you starts talking off about? as a heist book, but it, it is so not a heist book. And like, it, it, okay, it's more like a revolution, but and still, yeah, Lies yeah. of Wakamura is a heist book. It is without question a heist book. So it, yeah, very much, very much, yeah. Damn. Okay, well, I think that that brings us to the end of our discussion on the book. Shall we yep. head into the final draft? Let's. And I'll start off today with what I was drinking yesterday because as you saw, both of you, I actually finished this bottle yesterday. So we were talking, <laughs> actually. We weren't quite talking. Let, let me let me back up one step further. I was listening to this book as I was welding. I'm listening to it again, uh, an audiobook. And I was in the scene where, where Kelsier and Doxin are, you know, recruiting Vin for the first time. And they're going through Kemen's wine stash. And they even ask Vin. She, she says, I like ale. And Kelsier's like, oh, we're going to have to work on that. So I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually, for the first time on Inking Out Loud, bring a wine in. And I found this very nice wine that has a great, a great name on it. And I picked it up. It was, you know, medium price. But I just, but on the way out, I spotted a different wine. And I thought about that scene with Kelsh, uh, Kelsh and Marcier. Oh my god, <laughs> Martian Kelsey. You, you, you're really struggling today, man. I really am, boys. I don't know what's happening to me today. It's got to be the amount of hours that I've. I'm worked. just glad you called me on saying Moash. I thought I'd be able to slip that under the radar, and you guys would just be like. <laughs> Moash is like a. I hear the. I can smell the name Moash when it's said. I was hoping I could say it and then just like have you guys be like, huh? See what happens. Mm, no, not today. <laughs> not with that guy. Uh, but th th this wine that I, that I ended up bringing instead and drinking instead, I'm saving the the nice wine for next week. This one, I was thinking of the scene between Kelsier and Marsh and how Marsh is calling Kelsier out on all of his motivations and all of his methods, particularly his methods. This one here is a white wine. It's a Reiling Chardonnay slash, and I'm not going to pronounce this, this German word, Ger, uh, Gerwurztraminer. Yeah, Gerwurztraminer. <laughs> I'll say what but I said I yesterday. Say you got to say it more angrily, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gerwurztraminer. No, that almost came out like Arnold. This one here, by the way, is called Sibling Rivalry. Very good. That's perfection. Very, Thank very good. Kelsier and Marsh. This is to both of them. Yeah. So, Daniel, uh, you, you taking the healthy route again? Uh, I have beer in my fridge now. Uh, so I, I will say H2O because neither of them apply at all. I think one of them's called, like, Strawberry Fields or something. And then because it's a cider. <laughs> and then, a Beatles song. Yeah. And then another one is, uh, like, just some crappy IPA, which, by the way, IPAs are terrible and no one should ever drink them. Um, <laughs> Rob, you're going to make a second angry grunt in a second now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, speaking of IPAs, I'm drinking an IPA <laughs> from oh, nice. Four Noses Brewing Company in uh, Broomfield, Colorado, just outside of Denver. It's a, it's a pretty classic IPA. You know, nice, bright, citrusy hops. Drinkable, 7.1%, not overwhelming. But, uh, yeah, went a little meta with this one. Rob, thankfully, uh, set me up with his intro. I am drinking a beer oh. called Bout Damn Time. Oh, that's right. That's <laughs> right. I had talked about how we've been waiting so damn long to get back into the Cosmere since we last had Meg, your cousin, on from Warbreaker. You're damn right it's about damn time. That was a mm -hmm. perfect entry. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, yeah, I think that is a wrap for our first Mistborn episode. Yeah. Uh, this has been, oh my gosh, I already forgot, episode 71. 
<laughs> nope. It's 72. 72. Oh, man. Uh, episode 72 of the Eking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we will be finishing Mistborn and the Final Empire. Uh, check us out on Patreon if you want to support the podcast. Patreon.com slash Inking Out Loud. You can get access to our monthly newsletter, monthly short fiction. Uh, we have bonus episodes on there, all kinds of fun stuff. So consider uh, supporting us there. As always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yeah, buddy. And our special guest, Daniel Green. Thanks for coming on, Daniel. Thank you so Anytime. much, Daniel. Happy to do it. And thank you for allowing me to re-record after screwing it up last time. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, dude. Nothing that hasn't already happened to us before. Yeah, yeah. Such is the adventure of uh, podcasting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone.